0: Well, last week I announced that we would be finishing our study of 1 Peter, but we only made it to verse 9. And today I'm kind of reluctant to announce again that we would finish 1 Peter, but I will trust and believe that we will. So today we're going to pick up at verse 10 and take us down to verse 14. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 8 and just read down to the end of the chapter. It says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, strengthen, or confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. You know that there are 40 different titles that refer to Satan. Some of them are... The word devil, which means slanderer, Evil one, which talks about being intrinsically evil. The great red dragon, as he's mentioned in Revelation 12, that took a third of the angels with him. He's called that serpent of old. That would be the deceiver who was in Eden. He's called Abaddon which means destruction, and Apollyon, which means destroyer. He's also referred to as Beelzebul, which means lord of the fly. Belial, which means worthless. God of this world, ruler of this world, prince of the power of the air. He's also called the enemy, the tempter. He's called a murderer, He's called a liar, and he's called an accuser of the brethren. And if you'll notice there in verse 8, he's also referred to as an adversary. Another word for that would be Satan. Satan means adversary or opposer, he opposes the work of Christ. He also opposes you and me who follow Christ. Now, as Peter gives these final words, he wants them to understand their enemy, who is also the enemy of God. He wants them to understand that this defeated foe, he will be defeated. He sometimes comes at you roaring like a lion. And Peter wanted his readers to understand that the persecution that they were experiencing was a roar from the devil himself. He roared in their life by persecution. He roared in their life by suffering. Now there's somewhat a a paradox here. Because throughout this letter, we've been seeing God's will for us in suffering, but we also see unjust suffering. Satan is behind the unjust suffering. As we looked at last week when he accused Job before God, he said some lies about God, he said some lies about Job, because he's a father of lies. That's all that comes from him. Even when he quotes scripture like he did in Matthew 4, he comes with deceptive lies. Jesus said in John fifteen nineteen, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. We have nothing in common with the world. In fact, when it comes to our relationship with the world, we're told like in 1 John 2.15-17 uh, to, to not love it because all the things that are in it like the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And who is the head of the world? Who is the God of this world? Well, Ephesians chapter 2, He is called the Prince of the Power of the Air. We just heard just a moment ago. Satan is that one. He is the God of this world, and he has sought to blind the hearts of all people to the gospel. Because he knows that in blinding them from seeing and hearing the truth, they will stay forever deceived. There are a lot of people deceived today, there are a lot of people that sit in church that are deceived thinking that they are saved when in fact they're not. We know that's true because Jesus said that there would be tares among the wheat. Tares is a reference to unbelievers. Wheat is a reference to believers. But He would separate them at the end time. We do not belong to the world. And therefore we get persecuted by the world and the God of this world. We do not belong to them. No, the Scripture teaches that we have been chosen for salvation by Christ from out of the world. That's why the world hates you. That's why the world hates me. And where does the hate come from? Well, again, it comes from our adversary, Satan. Now, as we've been looking at this last chapter In 1 Peter 5, Peter basically begins by exhorting the elders in the church. And we talked a lot about the elders in the church, say that this is not referring to older people. This is referring to church leadership. We talked about some other terms that are used interchangeably with elder, like that of pastor or overseer. All three terms are used to speak of the office of pastor or elder. All three terms are are given to speak of the same individual, the same man who serves as a pastor in the church. We talked about the plurality of these men in the church and that they're given for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. They are teaching shepherds. And here Peter, as an elder, comes alongside these elders in this church and exhorts them And when he exhorts them, he calls them to the one main task that they have been given, and that is to shepherd the flock. And part of shepherding the flock is not just when things are easy, but also when things are difficult. The flock needs encouragement because they're suffering. Some of the suffering is unjust. Some of it is just. Some of it is from Satan, who uses people and demons to bring about the suffering and the persecution, but some of it is from God. And the ones that come from God are not unjust. They're righteous. And we see even like in chapter 1 and verses 6 and 7 when it talks about that that suffering is very distressing. It's very distressing for each one of us, especially for them. As they're experiencing... The backlash of what Nero did in his day with burning the city of Rome and then blaming it on the Christians. This, of course, caused much persecution. You know, Christians are being blamed for a lot of things today. You know, I prayed earlier uh, as we were praying for the persecuted church and talking about persecution here. And sometimes we we tend to scratch our head and say, well, where is the persecution coming from? Well, if you speak out against the woke culture, you're going to be persecuted. And I would say whether you're even a Christian or not. You just come across as a conservative, you're going to be attacked. If you address any kind of policy or any kind of belief that's liberal. And the sad thing also is that it's in the church. The very place that it should never be. And therefore when the church gets persecuted... It's not really for the right things or the right reasons. In fact, some churches have totally alleviated any kind of persecution from the culture because they have adopted the culture. They've adopted homosexuality. They have marrying homosexuals. They have opened up the doors wide uh, to these kind of perversities. You have women in the pulpit that are preaching the Word of God. You know, how many times does God have to say something for it to be true? or to be obeyed one time. And yet, in many cases, of the exhortations that are given to us in Scripture, we're given it many times, which somewhat accommodates our forgetfulness, right? That's the one thing about us that we all share in common. We forget. We do. So, if you back up, to verse 6, which kind of carries us forward. And we talked about this passive verb that's used here, translated humble. The verse says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. We pointed out that this is not an active verb. This is a passive verb. So it should be translated this way, Be humbled. Be humbled. The roaring of persecution that comes from the enemy will humble you. Allow it to humble you. Allow these suffering circumstances to humble you. And therefore to cause you to cast all your anxiety on God. In other words, to trust Him. And now when he comes to the end of this, he he gives a series of commands and exhortations. And we looked at verses 8 and 9 last time, but let me just remind you of what they were. The first one was, be sober. It says, be of sober spirit. The word spirit has been added there by the translators. It should just be translated, be sober. Ian Bounds says this, he says, The existence and the work of the devil is a serious matter. It is to be considered and dealt with from the most serious standpoint. And only serious people can deal with it. For this reason, the New Testament gives the repeated note of warning to be sober. And we talked about the word sober. In classical Greek, it meant one who was completely unaffected by wine. That is, this is one who avoided any intoxication. He didn't want to have anything controlling his mind other than the Word of God, later it became to refer to a sober manner of living which was demonstrated by being self-controlled. This is a balance that comes from one's disposition or a balance in their thought life or a balance in their actions. And I think of Ephesians 4.1 when I think of balance because... In Ephesians 4.1, Paul says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. And the word worthy there is a picture of scales. And what it is speaking of is this balance. Our lifestyle is to match our calling. And a lot of times, our lifestyle does not match our calling. But it has to. In order for us to win others to Christ, in order for us to be overcomers of our sin, or overcomers of Satan, we have to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling by which we've been called. So when he talks about being sober, he's using this uh, metaphorically to speak of this clarity of mind. Be clear-headed. Be serious in your thoughts. Have a steadfastness or a moral decisiveness about you. And why do you need that? Well, you're going to need that because of what he says about your adversary. But before he says that, he gives a second command, and the second command is be alert. And the word be alert... Uh, In Greek, it literally means to wake up, be watchful. It talks about this spiritual alertness. And there is an emphasis here on one's focus of attention. And what is that focus of attention on? Well, it's on sin and it's on Satan, your adversary. This is a call to be alert against the assaults of sin and the assaults of Satan. And see, the reason why they needed to be alert is because Satan wanted to devour them. Look at that in verse 8. Be sober, be on the alert or watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, someone to swallow up. In other words, he preys on our weaknesses. We looked at the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4 last time, and we saw that in that time of hunger, of fasting 40 days and 40 nights, then he became hungry. That's illustrating a physical weakness there of hunger. You and I experienced that. Some of you don't even make it through the service, but if you start breaking out your snacks, you know, because you're hungry, right? But in that moment of weakness, he attacked. Did he not? He attacked Jesus. And he attacked him in those areas of vulnerability. Now, Jesus couldn't sin. No way could he sin. If he could sin, then he wouldn't be God. But that does not mean he couldn't be tempted because temptation in and of itself is not a sin. Being tempted is not sin. Yielding to the temptation is the sin. When you give in to the temptation, that's the sin. But all of us can be tempted and not fall to it. And you have, at different times in your life, overcome temptation when you were tempted. That leads us also to verse 9, where he talked about being firm. He says there in verse 9, Since the devil is prying about like a roaring lion and seeking someone to devour, you need to resist him. You need to stand up against him. You need to oppose him. And by the way, standing up against Satan is not talking to Satan. It's not using some type of formula for Satan. Or using a phrase, I bind you, Satan, in the name of Jesus. You do not have that authority. That authority was not given to you or to me. In fact, it was very limited in the New Testament when that authority was given. Not all the apostles possessed that. It doesn't say when it lists the gifts that the apostles had every one of these gifts. Now, they possessed sign gifts... And they had to possess the sign gifts because that's what helped make their message receivable and believable. Because if they could say something and it came to pass, that would corroborate their character as well as what they're saying. Now James told us in James 4, 7 how to do this. When he quoted this, he said, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you there has to be submission to God in order to overcome the enemy. You can't ignore God in the process, nor can you ignore the spirit in the process. You know we are told in Scripture to walk by the spirit, and we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, Escalations 5:16. You know, we're told in Ephesians 5:18, to be not drunk with wine and which is excess, but be filled with the spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, certain things will happen in S. Ephesians 5.19 into chapter 6 and verse 9. All these things, he says, after that occur as a result of being filled with the Spirit. When you're filled with the Spirit, you produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life. But what's the devil want you to produce? He wants you to produce the work of the flesh. He wants you to be fleshly. He wants you to be carnal. He wants you to be sinful. He wants you to believe his lies. And Satan is a master of lies. He's a father of lies. He's also a murderer. John 8, 44, he is a liar and the father of lies. And we have to resist him. And we resist him by submitting to God. And by submitting to God, we're submitting to His Word. You have to be saturated with Scripture. Because the devil likes to come along and and plant doubt in your mind sometimes you'll have a thought that'll come up and you go where in the world did that thought come from and it is a lie it is something very deceptive it is something very discouraging it is something to cause you to doubt that's how he works and Paul said we're not ignorant of his devices so there has to be a resisting of the devil that we saw an opposing of the devil, standing up against the devil, by what he says in the next part of verse nine, he says, "Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world." So, in other words, you resist the devil in a couple ways. One, by being deeply rooted in the content of the Christian faith, you're rooted in Scripture, you're rooted in doctrine, and secondly, you resist by understanding that Satan tempts and attacks all believers that's what he does he is against all believers he is against you he is against me he's against everything this church stands for and everything that we proclaim from it but first corinthians ten thirteen gives us the same kind of thought when it says no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. So the trials that we experience, the temptations that we experience, they're very common. You're not going through something that someone else hasn't already went through. You know, and when I read a verse like that, it makes me think of how much we do need the body of Christ. Some people get out there and they get isolated. And I was just talking to someone just yesterday, I think it was yesterday, and they were telling me how a lot of uh, uh, people have adopted the digital church to where they physically do not go to church anymore. And that's really sad because you cannot fellowship with a TV set or a monitor or a telephone. Uh, You can't have that interaction with people through those means like you can when you're there in person. When you're there in person, you see each other, you're encouraged by each other. And if you're watching just a stream, uh, that's all you get. And you don't even know who's in the room because the camera is pointed in one direction. It's not scanning everybody. It's not there for us all to kind of wave and say, hey, how you doing? Whoever you are on the other side, you know. But some people have found that that is more convenient. Instead of actually getting up and going to church, they can just walk into the other room or just pull up their phone while they're laying in bed and just, you know, have the streams. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm I'm thankful that we have the ability to do these things. We do this. A lot of churches do this. And it's very helpful for people who are incapacitated, cannot get out of their bed or cannot drive or cannot come to the church physically or people who are sick and for those same reasons so there is benefit with it but there's also a loss that occurs and that loss in communion that loss in fellowship speaking of communion you can't take communion through a digital camera I can't hand you the juice and you take it from my hands or from anybody else's hands for that matter So, as we look at this, this this is what we see that we looked at last time and what we saw last time, where he called for them to be sober, to be alert, and to be firm. And all of this seems to be hinging around the reason because of the adversary, the devil. But I want you to notice now in verses 10 and 11 what he has to say. Look at verse 10. He says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So if we're to be sober, alert, firm, verses 10 and 11 says we're to be patient. And let me show you how I get that. First of all, when you are suffering, you want it to end. And you want it to end now. I mean, that's a human response. Sometimes that's an emotional response. The pain is so difficult. The pain is so bearing on you that you would just love for this to end. Whatever that is. And Peter tells us that Suffering is for a little while. In other words, it is temporary. And here he's going back to the theme of what he's been talking about in this letter of suffering and persecution. But this is a reminder for them, and this is a, a line of encouragement for them too, that it's temporary. A little while, that's one word in Greek, and it Is referring either to duration or degree in suffering, and most likely it refers to both of them. Over in chapter 1 and verse 6, Peter has already said, In this you greatly rejoice. That is the rejoicing in the fact that you are kept by the power of God. He says, Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So again, they're temporary. Even Paul said this in Romans 8, in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So again, the suffering you're going through right now, it can't compare in any way to the glory that you're going to experience all through eternity. And the suffering that you're experiencing right now is much different than the suffering that you experienced before, and it will also be much different than the experience of suffering in the future. You and I can't pinpoint the diversity of these trials or the intensity of these trials. I mean, that's James 1. But you and I have to trust God, trust in His sovereign hand, Therefore, we can have joy in the midst of this suffering because it's Him whom we're seeking. This suffering here, Paul even says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And notice there he says it's momentary. So you and I, after we have suffered for a short time, he says, the God of all grace who called you to into, his, into his eternal kingdom or eternal glory in Christ will himself do four things. He's going to perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you through these trials. See, trials do have a purpose. And even though that they're very uncomfortable, they're distressing, they do have a purpose. First notice he says in verse 10, where he refers to God as the God of all grace. That's a beautiful phrase, especially after what he has just said after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace. God is going to be merciful. God is going to be graceful to you. He's going to show His favor to you. This title only appears here. In other places, like 2 Corinthians 1, three, He's called the God of all comfort. Hebrews 13.20, He's called the God of peace. and Romans 15.13, He's called the God of hope. That's the God that we serve. He is a God of all grace, all comfort, peace, and hope. And boy, how we need to hear that when we're suffering. He is the source. He is the giver of grace. That's why He is the God of all grace. And we see that all the way back in Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, when God didn't give Adam and Eve what they deserved, when they disobeyed Him, and took of the forbidden fruit. If you remember in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, God told them of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. You go into chapter 3, Eve is there alone being tempted by the serpent who was embodied by Satan and got her to question the goodness and the kindness of God, make her think that God was holding out on her. And so she heeded the voice of the serpent, took of that forbidden fruit. And by that point, her husband was there with her. And she hands the fruit to him, and he also took a bite. Now, it seems to be in the text that their eyes were both opened together at the same time. Her eyes wasn't open until he took of that fruit as well. That's what it seems to read there. But the point is that their eyes were opened And now they saw that they were naked, which was something that they had never seen before. They never had any guilt. They never had any shame. But now they had all of this. And now they had evil in their mind. And again, something that they had never experienced. They'd only heard about it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But now they were experiencing it. For the first time, they had dirty thoughts. Filthy, perverted thoughts. And for the first time, they would have to cover themselves. And that all depicts the shame, and the guilt, and even them hiding among the trees as they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the morning. They hid themselves into where God cries out to them or calls out to them. And by the way, when you hear Him calling out to them in Genesis 3, 9, it's really a tender voice. It's Adam. Where are you? And it's not where are you as if God did not know where he was, but it's Adam, where are you now? Where has this gotten you? If you'll notice, God didn't blast them. He confronted them. He banished them from the garden. He caused their provision to come with toil and labor. He called, caused pain to come with childbearing. But even in all of that, you see His grace. For example, He didn't give them what they deserved. He did eventually, but He didn't give them immediately what they deserved. you know how long they lived after that happened? 930 years God told them in the day that you eat of this you shall surely die physically they didn't die for 930 years but you know what they immediately died spiritually immediately sin entered in immediately they had evil immediately they went from innocence to depravity Total depravity. And even in the midst of that, God was graceful. He gave them children, Genesis 4. And even after one of their kids takes the life of the other one, God gives them another child, Seth. He provided them with food, He gave them flocks. He gave them clothing, the animal skins from these animals. He gave them the fruit of the ground. But more importantly than anything, He gave them Christ. Genesis 3.15 And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel." He gave them Christ. We're told in 1 Peter that Christ was preordained before the foundation of the world. What happened with Satan wasn't an accident or a surprise to God. What happened in the garden was not an accident or a surprise either. There's no surprises to God, our God is sovereign. There are no accidents. Our God is sovereign. He's in control. And I know we describe things that way from our standpoint, from a human standpoint. But that doesn't mean it's true. Now, there were consequences for their sin. Of course, they were banished from the garden. They would have pain in the childbearing, as we said. They had a pain in working the ground. but they would also have His grace. Think about your life. We should have never been born. I mean, you think about what Adam and Eve did. They should have been killed immediately, which would have ended any future for humanity. I mean, even when you think about our lives now, look at your life now. Even in Christ, look at your life. How many of you struggle with sin? All of our hands should be up. Our toes too. Psalm 58 verse 3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They're sinners in the womb. David said, In sin did my mother conceive me. And he wasn't talking about a sinful relationship. It was sin in him as a child in the womb and shows us, biblically speaking, when does God recognize that being a living child is in the womb? And yet people today are all over themselves trying to murder that child in the womb. But the wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. The very moment that that little child can start putting words together, what do we hear? Lies. Don't we? He's saying like, not my little angel. Now when Peter talks about this all grace, and talking about God being the giver of all grace, he's, he's pointing out the great variety of his gracious help for every need And for every occasion, there is grace for every need we have. Let me illustrate that to you by having you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul talks about being caught up to the third heaven in the first Six verses. He was very reluctant to talk about it. In fact, there was much he couldn't say because he was forbidden to talk about it. I find it very amazing today that we have people go on TV or do tent revivals or write books and they say that they saw the Lord and then they begin to describe what they've seen. We have a guy out in California that says every time he shaves, Jesus comes in, puts his arm around him while he's shaving. That's one bizarre act. I was at one of the Bible colleges years ago, and I was in a night class, and I remember hearing a gentleman talking about uh, being awakened one night, and when he woke up, Jesus was sitting on the couch with him. Uh, I sat there more looking at the teacher than looking at him, wondering how in the world this story made it uh, to a vocal point to be shared because we all signed agreements with the college about things like that. You could not attend that college and be actively charismatic and talk about it at that. But yet it went on. That's not the only thing. I've had people tell me things, uh, strange things, and they believe that these strange things have happened. And they don't like it when they ask me what I think, and sometimes I'll say, well, I don't believe it. I don't believe what you said happened. I just don't believe it. But my problem is, is that you believe it. And there is a generation that looks for signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Folks, we're past that time. But here, if you'll notice how Paul responds to this, he he got this revelation He saw things as he was caught up to the third heaven. And he says in verse 7, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And here is a situation where God used a demon in this church to humble Paul. God does these things. I remember one church that I was at. It was a very difficult church. It was probably the second difficult church I'd ever pastored, but this one was pretty bad, or it went went bad. And uh, I remember meeting with some fellow pastors one day for lunch, and they uh, asked the wrong question. The wrong question was, was, how are you doing? And I was pretty fragile at at that moment. I'm not doing good at all. But I was very familiar with this passage and I was, I was meditating on this passage and even listening to sermons on this passage. And I remember sitting in the parking garage at First Baptist Church fixing to go into a pastor's conference and hearing a sermon on this passage by which the preacher said that God will sometimes totally destroy a church for the sole purpose of humbling its pastor. I stopped the tape. Back then it was cassette tapes. I stopped the tape and I sat there and I just bawled my eyes out because I was afraid that that's what God was doing. All that to humble me? I didn't know what to think of that. I just knew I didn't want to be responsible for that. that was very humbling to hear that and then to go back over those circumstances that I was experiencing and to look at them from that light we tend to be sometimes just one sided when we look at things that are going on in our life especially when it comes to trials and persecution and suffering I mean suffering takes on various forms for sure And the devil is behind them too. And God allows them in your life to humble you. So Paul says in verse 8, concerning this, he asked the Lord three times to remove it. And look at verse 9, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. Paul, my grace is sufficient for you in this moment of humbling. This moment of, of attack from a messenger of Satan. For power is perfected in weakness. And Paul understood that because look at what he said next. If that's the case, if power is perfected in weakness and I'm going to get all the grace I need in my weakness, then most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, with, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, we need to memorize that verse. You know that. That is a good verse to be reminded of. To be well content... With weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties. He is the God of all grace. And when you resist Satan, firm in your faith, and you know that what you're experiencing are the same things that your brethren are enduring... But keep in mind that your suffering that you're enduring is is short lived. And the God of all grace who called you is going to do something for you in that time of suffering. That's pretty amazing. The God of all grace. See, you have to be patient. You have to let God's work be accomplished in your life. I mean, isn't that what James says? He says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Then notice this, but let endurance have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We're after spiritual maturity here. And so each trial and each trouble that we experience are going to be different. And your ability to endure is going to be different. So it's very important for you and I to get the point. Even if we don't know exactly why we're going through that at the moment, It may be revealed later or it may not be revealed, but the fact is is that we're going to go through it and we're going to be subject to trials and testings and we're going to have to evaluate where our trust is. Is our trust in things or other people or is it in God Himself? And so being patient is so... So uh, utterly important. But you can do it because you have the God of all grace. And the God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. You know, salvation is a gracious call from God. That holy calling is described in some detail in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, especially chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Here's what we find in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 about our salvation. We see in verse 4 that we're chosen. Verse 5, we're predestined. Verse 5, we're adopted. Verse 6, we're accepted. Verse 7, we're redeemed through his blood. Verse 7, we're forgiven. Verse 13, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 14, we're given the earnest of our inheritance. This is all that takes place in our salvation. This is all that we're given. And Paul even calls it those spiritual blessings that we find in Christ. We've been blessed with all those blessings. In addition to that, Philippians 3.14 talks about our calling as being an upward call. And Hebrews 3.1 refers to it as a heavenly calling. But notice here, he says it's a call to His eternal glory in Christ. That's at the middle of verse 10. He's called you to His eternal glory. This is indicating His ultimate purpose of His call. That we might share the eternal glory that is His. And His eternal glory, that's the last of the repeated references of God's glory in this epistle. We actually find it in chapter 1 and verse 7, verse 11, verse 21, chapter 4 and verse 11 as well as finding it in chapter 5 and verse 1. And here He's bringing this glorious eschatological climax as He refers back to Christ and His return This expression summarizes all that God still has in store for all of His saints. Notice those final words again. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ He's going to do something, and it's so neat to see this. These four things, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish... All of these are four future tense verbs. And on top of that, God is personally involved. It says right here that He will Himself do this. He's not sending an angel to do this, He's not doing it through a third party, like through other people or through churches. He's doing it himself. He himself is going to perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And by the way, this is used in the indicative. The indicative in Greek means it is a fact. He will do it. He will do it. It's also active. In the voice of this verb, these verbs, and the active voice is telling us that he himself is causing the action, he will do it. So let's look at them. First, he's going to perfect, and that's the word that means to mend or repair. It has the idea of equipping something or preparing something for future use. When the word is applied to something that's weak or something that's defective, it talks about setting it right. Setting something wrong right. Restoring it to its former condition. Mending something that was broken. So what's he saying with this first one? God is promising that He Himself will repair the damage that sin and suffering have wrought in you. He's going to repair it. William Barclay says, like a doctor setting a broken bone, God will mend our broken lives and make us whole. Second thing he says, he's going to confirm you. The word confirm means to make solid, make firm, fix firmly in a place, establish, make you stable. This is an inward firmness, an inward commitment. It means to strengthen So it has the idea of providing support, stabilizing something. And it's used here in the present tense, which basically says that God is going to constantly do this. When he uses the present tense for a verb, it's talking about ongoing action. And so it's saying here that he is going to continuously do this. He's going to take that trouble, he's going to take those trials, and he's going to make you solid from them. He's going to make you firm. He's going to restore you, and he's going to inwardly make you firm. Or, as one writer says, he will make you as solid as granted and enable you to stand against the fiery ordeal and the storms of life. Third, he's going to fill you with strength. He's going to strengthen you. Psalm 138.7 Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. He will give you strength in your weakness. You remember what Paul says here? When he talked about his weakness, if, if power is perfected in his weakness and he's going to get the grace that he needs in his weakness, then he's going to boast about his weakness so that the power of Christ would rest on him. See, the persecution that's intended by Satan, its purpose is to weaken you. is to wear you out. But God's purpose is the opposite. God's purpose is to strengthen you. To give you endurance. And then the fourth one he mentions is to establish you. That means to lay a foundation. Provide a foundation. So you have... Being made stable in your heart, but now you're standing as well on a firm, secure foundation. You are standing securely. And what did we sing today? On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. It's in Christ who is our firm foundation. The net effect of these four positive verbs is that God intends to restore and to establish securely those who are now suffering on His behalf. He's going to restore you, and He's going to establish you securely. See, quit looking at your trouble as something bad, though. Though. There are things in our trouble that are bad. But try to look past that. Try to look at the heart of God. Try to look at the God of all grace and what he is doing there. Wayne Grudem writes this He says, God will restore you after you have suffered. The God of all grace will restore them or make them fully prepared and complete with respect to any resource or ability which they have lost through this suffering. He will establish them firmly in any position, rightful privilege, or responsibility which this suffering has taken from them. He will strengthen them for any weakness that they have been made to suffer, any inadequacy for overcoming evil which they may have known. And we should add that He will settle settle them in any rightful place for which the suffering has wrongfully removed them. In some, all loss will soon be made right, and that for eternity. No wonder, in verse 11, Peter breaks out in praise. The praise that comes from this. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is a confession and this is an acknowledgement. And it's indeed His dominion. He is the God of all grace who has called you. Who Himself will perfect and confirm, strengthen and establish you. He is the one who dominates. God is bigger than your trial. God is bigger than your persecutions. God is bigger than your suffering that you're experiencing. And so that word dominion, that is signifying strength. This is talking about God's ability to dominate, to have everything in the universe under His sovereign control. Here's you some verses that talk about that. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. He has established. He is the ruler. I mean, you look at the culture and you look at what's going on in the world, and it looks like God is not there, doesn't it? But isn't that exactly what Isaiah saw? I mean, you read Isaiah 66 chapters, and you read about the vision he has in chapter 6, and you read about Uzziah who had been king for 52 years. And God killed him. And Isaiah comes into the temple. He sees God on his throne. Which basically tells us that he's always on his throne. Always. Jeremiah twenty three twenty four Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? Yes, he does. And I want you to notice too, uh, Peter mentions the glory and the dominion of Christ also in chapter 4 and verse 11 by putting Him equal with the Father. It also ends with that word amen, translated amen. Amen means so let it be. It's it's an affirmation. It's a, a term of agreement. So when you hear someone say amen, they're saying so let it be. So let it come to pass. I'm standing in agreement with what I'm hearing. And so it is to be with God in Christ. I mean, if God is the God of all grace, He is the one who is giving that grace in our weakness, who is restoring us, who is establishing us, strengthening us, laying us on a firm foundation... Then it shows that he is in control, not the persecutions, not the people that are persecuting us, not Satan. God is in control. Now, the letter ends with several things. Actually, I'm going to finish it. In verse 12, Peter affirms the veracity of this letter by saying through Silvanus, who was also a companion of Paul, he refers to him as a faithful brother. He said, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And then next, he reminds them in verse 13 <clears throat> that she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. And many believe that the name Babylon was used here figuratively and was a cryptic designation for the city of Rome. That was the earliest known view in church history. It was favored by a majority of scholars today. If you pick up a commentary, that's what you're going to read. And so Peter was just really being careful. He was being careful not to endanger those Christians who were in Rome, who were experiencing the persecution instigated by Nero. And so having written this from Rome, he didn't want his manuscript to be discovered. He did not want to bring on any further persecution. Now, in verse 14, he encourages them to greet one another with a holy kiss. And what does that mean? It means what we do when we come in here. We shake hands. It's just a form of greeting. And if you see a guy... Uh Sitting there kissing a woman, uh, watch how long he does it because it might mean more to him than that if it 's not his wife or his girlfriend. But it was a form of greeting, and so just as he began with a greeting, he 's ending with a greeting, and he wants them to know that everyone who is here in Rome. We're sending you greetings. Also, Mark, who was my son in the faith. He was also the Mark that worked with Paul and Barnabas. He wants them to have the peace. And so, his final words, A peace be to you who are in Christ, is similar to the way that he began. The letter began in chapter 1 and verse 2 with grace. It ends with grace in verse 10 of chapter 5 and with peace in verse 14. So beloved, suffering and persecution, it is hard. And sometimes enduring through that is very difficult. But it doesn't compare... To the glory that will be revealed in us. The worst kind of suffering is being without Christ for all eternity while being punished in hell for your sin. That's the worst kind of suffering. But for the follower of Christ, it's much different. It is much different. For the follower of Christ, God is with you in your suffering. God is strengthening you. God is establishing you. He's maturing you. And He's also indicating to you He will not leave you. Let me close with this verse right here. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Therefore He had to be made, that is Jesus, made like His brethren in all things so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Jesus knows about our suffering. Jesus suffered in the flesh. So when you're suffering, is it for Christ? Or is it for something that you did that was sinful? Because if you did something sinful and you're suffering for it, well, that's really justified because of what you did. But if you're suffering for Christ, just remember that you're identifying with His sufferings. And your response should be the same that He gave. And what was that? Well, he says in 1 Peter 2, 21, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. And while suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. We're to have that kind of response. And so, beloved, I hope that as you come to this conclusion with me to this letter, as we've been going through it for some six, seven, eight months, that you come to the understanding that when you suffer for Christ, you need to suffer like Christ. You need to be like Christ in your suffering. You don't need to open your mouth. You don't need to appeal to anything. You need to trust God. Trust Him. And really to escape the worst suffering at all, which is called the second death, which is hell, in the book of Revelation... You have to come to Christ. And so if you have never come to Christ, I call you to come to Christ. I call you to repent and turn from your sin and come to Christ, who alone will forgive you of all your sin. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this time that we've had together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege that has been given to us to study it together and to study this rich letter that Peter gave. We thank you for all the time that we've had together, learning and growing together in this book. We pray now that you'll prepare us for the next one as we begin to continue to look at your word. And Lord, thank you for each person that you have brought here today, and we also pray for each person and where they're at spiritually. I pray that everybody in here knows and loves you with all their heart soul mind and strength and if there's anyone who has not surrendered to Christ that today would be that day of sin of surrender that day of